0: This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. welcome to the Film Jive podcast. We are recording this episode on October 26th, 2014. My name is Zach.
1: And uh, I'm Andy.
0: This is episode number 83, where we are looking at Werner Herzog's 1979 horror film Nosferatu the Vampire, released by Werner Herzog Film Production and starring Klaus Kinski and Isabella Adjani. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis?
1: I certainly will. And the film in the U.S., and I think around the world, was released by 20th Century Fox. Yes. They were the... Dist- I still find that amazing. 20th Century Fox, of all companies, were like, we want this movie. <laughs> so, plot synopsis, spoiler alert. Jonathan Harker is sent away to Count Dracula's castle to sell the a house in Wisemar, where Jonathan lives nearby. But Count Dracula is a vampire, an undead ghoul, ooh, <laughs> living off of men's blood. Inspired by a photograph of Lucy Harker, Jonathan's wife, Dracula moves to Wisemar, bringing with him death and plague.
0: William Castle's corpse just
1: yeah, a massive erection. He got an erection. He's like, cool. Ooh. Um, my, my, my big question, whenever I watch this, whenever I think about this movie, why did he change the name? Why did he change characters? Why is it Lucy and not Mina?
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you that as well. I mean, I know... Um... In the 22 version, they completely renamed the characters. Everybody. Yeah. But I, I don't actually understand why he reverses the roles of the two characters. It's fun that he does. I mean, I don't know if it's just artistic flourish just to establish something that's even further away from the novel or
1: what? Well, if I, if I remember correctly, I think in Hammer's first Dracula film, Horror of Dracula, I want to say Jonathan Harker's fiancé is Lucy. Yes. In that one. But that one is so far off from the source that you know, I'm surprised her name wasn't Bill. <laughs> um I mean he's a he's a librarian in that one, not uh who already knows Dracula's a vampire, not a guy trying to sell him real estate.
0: Reinfeld is completely removed from that. Yeah, pull. yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. And even just um like the characterization of Van Helsing in this film is incredibly awesome. different really? than Really, all the versions.
1: Well, I mean, this one. What I think is a very impressive for this one, which I think is a great film. I think this film is a like a female empowerment movie. I mean, really, Lucy is the go-getter. She stands her own with Dracula when Dracula comes into her room. He even kind of like when he says like I can give you salvation," she kind of like flicks her hair and says, "You can like get salvation in yourself." <laughs> she just kind of like tells him off, you know? Yeah. She's the smartest character. I mean. Why did he do that? Why did he kind of, like, I think, recast Dracula into a uh, woman empowerment picture?
0: I think it has something to do with how he characterizes Count Dracula to begin with. I mean, when you look at Max Shrek in Nosferatu, yeah. he is really just, like, a soulless monster. Yes. In this film, Klaus Kinski is...
1: <laughs> He's
0: also yeah, basically somebody struggling with depression who's on the you know almost suicidal, yeah, and I think where he brings Lucy so strongly into the story is by giving them this psychic connection, you know, her understanding of what's happening in moments that she's not even a part of, and I think that right. that yeah. urge that Dracula has in this film to want to actively participate in some kind of human love. Is what I guess brings those two together. And that's what allows Lucy to, I guess, essentially take the protagonist role of the movie over from that point. Why did he do that? I don't know. Because it's actually very unusual for a female character to become the protagonist in a Herzog film. I and mean, when you look yeah. at his filmography, women are not typically that present.
1: No, yeah, they're really not. Um, uh-huh. And especially yeah, at this point channel. in
0: his career. I mean, a lot of times you had um, Eva, I can't think of her last name, but the actress that's in Strozek and Wojcic. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Lottie Eisner does provide the voiceover for Fada Morgana, but really they're very much, yeah, secondary characters. So
1: to make yeah, her went, such a prominent... Yeah, look down the line of all those films, they're all secondary.
0: Oh. And I wonder if that's just because he he sees vampires is very I don't know. There's something very sexual about this film. Yeah, but, but I think he really he underplays yeah, he, it, but
1: Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Dracula in this is far from the sex image of, you know, young go Lugosi or Frank Langella. Frank Langella had been doing him on Broadway for a few years by this point. And this is the same year that the Frank Langella Dracula film came out.
0: Have you seen that movie, by the way? Yes.
1: Yeah, but it's been, it's been a few years. But yeah, I mean, I enjoy it, but it's pretty slow moving and very romantic, and I think it. Uh, I think it relates a lot to the Coppola one, that came later, which you hate. Oh, uh, it's a horrible movie. A great looking movie, but a horrible movie.
0: I agree. I know I've said I've loved it on the show before, but that's usually <laughs> just because I like to get you going. But yeah. I agree. I I don't like Bram Stoker's Dracula.
1: But but at this point, 1979, I would say that the the three main uh, Draculas that that audiences would have had would have been had by Lugosi's. Who was a sex symbol at that time in the '31? And that's so weird. <laughs> that is incredibly <laughs> weird. Yeah, I know it is very weird. Frank Langella, who was a sex symbol at that time, and that's weird if you ask yeah, me. Yeah. And uh, Christopher Lee, who's not a sex symbol, but he doesn't portray his Dracula as sexy. He portrays him as threatening in a like this guy looks mean and vicious kind of way.
0: Yeah, but I, I do think, but but I think Hammer they do sexualize him just in that they really shift the focus to an oral fixation with Dracula rather where Lugosi, it's all in the eyes. Like
1: in Langella, it was the the disco hair that he had in that movie. Okay. (laughs) The Saturday night fever haircut he had for some reason. Yeah. I've never seen the Batum film
0: and a lot of it just has to do with like, I'm not familiar with Frank Langella's earlier work and the thought Mm of him Having once played,
1: Dracula is very strange to me. I think you should ch- you should check it out. It won't make you go like this is the best Dracula movie ever made. It won't you won't even think this is a great Dracula movie. It's decent. It is like a remake of the Lugosi one in that they both do the play. Oh, okay. But it's 'cause because that's what I mean. That's what it was. It was a revival on Broadway of the Dracula play that Lugosi was in that they made in thirty one. And so they revived it on Broadway with Franklin Jella, and so they made the movie with him. But you know, like I think Lawrence Olivier, if I remember correctly, is Van Helsing and stuff. They kind of recast the movie, and um, it's just kind of like a very glossy if movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, this but film that's is not glossy at all. No, no, not at all. Although it's beautifully shot, but yeah, I didn't really see it as a very sexual film at all.
0: Well, I think the climax the scene where she gives him gives herself
1: over to him is very sexual. That, yeah, that is. I mean, she is seducing him in a very erotic way. And I even think the way that she pulls him back down has a very, uh, very erotic feel to it. I really like
0: that moment in that it's very sedated and he doesn't try to... Like, he never tries to catalog the passage of time in any way. Like, it's very disorienting in the sense that you don't... Because of the rhythm you aren't sure how long this is gonna go this is mm-hmm. gonna last. Like especially because the rest of the movie it's executed at such a pace that pace that would allow for a scene to carry on for ten minutes if it wanted yeah. to. But I I like that you don't know when the sun's gonna rise and it's probably it's probably the most romantic scene Werner <laughs> Herzog has ever
1: <laughs> shot between a man and a woman anyway. Yeah. Well what I think one of the things that I like about it is um Shows her power, or the power that he gave her, and and inverts kind of the the, the way that sex is shown in films. If we look at it as a as a sexual episode, when it's all over, she smiles. She has a grin on her face. She doesn't have like a big cheesy grin, but she's a, she, a grin comes across her face. Mm. There was so she had like not pleasure in him biting her, but pleasure in his fate. But I thought that was kind of a a neat thing that he did, and that you don't necessarily see that in in film this kind of a pleasure response from a female
0: yeah i hadn't really considered that
1: but isabella
0: johnny is wonderful in this movie mm-hmm. yeah that mere sequence where oh, she holds yeah. like this expression on her face and there's just her performance is so much in her eyes
1: mm-hmm.
0: maintaining this shock in the way that she, her body language moves like it's it's very beautiful. The whole film is like that. For me, it's like such a great study of how actors use their physicality. The little things that Kinsky does just with his hands, the way he holds his hands together. Yeah. Or like when he's feeding on someone, the runs, taps his fingers along their forehead is like if his hand is like a spider or something. It's just so, there's so much expression and there's so little dialogue that's required to do it because... And in that way, well, it kind of functions as a
1: silent film. Silent you know. movie. Yeah, I mean, his is such a physical performance. He, like, nails every scene he's in. Is I he mean, the best he, Dracula? That's tough to say because this is so... Different. Uncharacteristically Dracula.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is he iconic like Bela Lugosi? No, but I don't think Bela Lugosi is actually very good in the movie. He's
0: got the great look. Well, yeah, I I think a lot of his performance just comes in how he how he's physically designed, yeah, yeah, and the way that he's photographed, yeah.
1: And I think, in a way, Christopher Lee in my mind has always been the best Dracula, but I think the performance that Kinski gives in this is better is better than any Christopher Lee ever gives. But in my mind, I'll always revert to Christopher Lee mm. as Dracula. So I don't know how you categorize that then.
0: Yeah, and I mean Christopher Lee's just also.
1: In a lot of bad Dracula, movies he's in, yeah, he's in a lot of bad Dracula movies as well. Although I do think Dracula, horror of Dracula, is a good movie. It's a very good movie. And Jess Franco's Count Dracula is a good Dracula movie, which stars klaus kinski as well. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That's true. That's true. I think it's the single best Dracula performance possibly. Is this one? Because he owns every scene he's in, in my opinion. I mean the scene that you mentioned with the mirror. She is fantastic, but I mean, I mean, I think he owns the scene still. I think also
0: it's like one of those performances where it's so uncharacteristic of what you know of him. Oh, you know? I know. He's <laughs> so, so internalized. Yeah, I mean, he's still incredibly intense. Um, mm-hmm. There's such a strong sense of displacement. In every scene that he has, he feels so kind of separate from everyone else. Kinsky's just so kind of mellow in his scenes, but mm-hmm. he but he's so good in how he uses his body. I know that, according to Herzog, a lot of his physical performance was Herzog directed like it was "I want you to do this, I want you to do this," and yeah, Kinsky wanted to be bigger and louder but then he talks about how the ending scene when he dies the moaning the trying to breathe that's there's something that you can't direct that is Klaus Kinski and to me like when you watch performance like this i can see why he tolerates like all of this <laughs> conflict that comes from him because really i mean there is nobody that has that sort of like on-screen intensity even when he's doing so little as unimaginable as his, like, physical proportions are. And you could say, well, I mean, he's got so much makeup and these different, you know, the fingernails, everything at his disposal to make this such a creepy performance. But all that stuff almost is, like, downplayed in favor of just, like si- like, sitting in the space and just looking at these very dark circles under his eyes and just yep. how sad, like, how... It's the only vampire movie that I think I've ever seen that really, really takes into account the loneliness that being a vampire would inherit. Yeah. I guess Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive is also about that, but it's a much more punk rock
1: take on that. Well, I also thought that not only just the loneliness of being a vampire... But also the act of being a vampire. I mean, he has the scene when the wolves are howling, and he does the "Children of the Night" line, and uh, he says to Jonathan, "You know, people like you can never put you can never put your souls into that of a hunter." And to me, it just reads like is it, he's just essentially telling him, "You know, I this is what I have to do. I have to hunt, but it's nothing that you actually want to do." Right. It really
0: focuses on his on the predatory nature of that. Hmm. I think it's also interesting, too, that it re-engineers the book in the sense that in the book, if I remember correctly, every time Dracula feeds, his youth is sort of slowly restored. Restored, yeah. (laughs) Whereas in this, it feels like every time Dracula feeds, more of his soul fades out of him, almost. like It's like he almost regrets having to do this, but it's the only way he can survive. But then he also, like, he's such a kind of contradiction, because then he, he seems to just want to die. Like, that's what he wants, but he wants to die a normal death, or whatever, or want to find a way to experience human life. Yeah. It's a hell of a performance. It, it is, it is, yeah. And it's, it's also incredibly strong just in the sense that Max Shrek is incredible in the 1922 Nosferatu. And where how vastly different Kinsky is, kind of in the same mold, is mm-hmm. just two completely different interpretations of the same character and how effective they are at being kind of polar opposites to one another.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well Kinsky's performance is trying to emote empathy, I think, ultimately. Yeah.
0: It is a very empathetic character, but at the same time it also uh it reveals how dangerous you know, he is as well. Like, he is still yeah. very, like, uh, frightening in scenes, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. The moment when he sucks his hand and then looks away and then he comes back, they walk across the space. Like, it's such a... He feels so large in that moment. He's not really that much taller than Bruno Gans, but he feel like, you just feel his presence, how powerful it is. I don't know. And the way that the, the handheld camera is just incredible and then it's also just one of my favorite scenes is actually when he runs through the center of the village oh that's such a great scene he's almost like galloping like a horse like his way he's running and i don't know if that's because he's wearing he's got like three inch heels on or something but it's uh because I, i guess they had him wear elevated shoes so he looked a little bit taller but just the way that he moves is so fascinating and, you know, I have to say, like beforehand, maybe talking about this movie wasn't the best idea because it is just going to be like us coming all over it. <laughs> like, you know, like it part of it is just we've never talked about a Herzog film before. And right. it's like I wanting to do that. But I'm always very suspicious of people when they say, I love this entire director's body of work. He never made a, a bad film. There's not one film of theirs that I don't love. And I honestly kind of feel like Herzog's the only filmmaker that I've probably seen about 30 of his movies now. And I like every single one of them.
1: Okay, I was going to say, I like all of them too. I don't love all, like Heart of Glass, I don't love Heart of Glass. Oh, I love Heart of Glass, yeah. I don't love Heart of Glass,
0: but I do like it. Phantom Organa, I don't love. And I think this film and Heart of Glass share a lot in common just in how subdued the performances are. Yeah, they're they're
1: both very contemplative in a way. But yeah, I mean, he's—I I have a hard time believing he's ever made a bad film, or at least a film that's not interesting in some way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the the look of this movie is—can we just say? I mean, it's like amazing. It's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such a, like you said it well. I think I, I believe earlier you said it wasn't pretty. I mean, I think this movie is like beautiful to look at. Oh
0: yeah, I'm just saying it's not—it was—it's yeah. not glossy like no, most it's definitely not Dracula. And it is.
1: It is a beautiful film to look like, to look at. And another thing is, I think it's pretty goddamn colorful. In the clothing, clothing of the gypsies, it's very colorful. The scene where he's walking down the hall, and he's got the blue light shining on his face. I think the square is pretty colorful. Isabella Ageny's, her clothing, she has like the deep blues on, and of her, on a lot of her daytime wear. Mm-hmm. I think it's a gorgeous movie to look at. Some of these shots, I, wanna, I, you know, I watched it, Today again, and you could just take stills from this movie and put them together in a coffee table book, and it'd be great. People wouldn't have to watch porn anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's how beautiful that the photography in this movie is.
0: I think, like you're saying, what sets this apart from most movies for me in general is that it's packed with just visual iconography. I mean, when you think about the number of memorable images. I mean, it's like
1: the entire film. And You know, a lot of movies people say they're painterly. This film is not, in my opinion, it's not painterly. It's photography. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so beautiful that, it, but it's not like I like. I don't think it's like this looks like a painter would have done it. No, this is like a great photographer wishes he could do this.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's um, it is like a cinematographer's wet dream in the sense that it's very economically photographed. Um, there isn't very much coverage in any of the scenes a lot of them play out in one to two shots and it's primarily handheld but it's handheld because it's it's living in the moment with the character and there's a a weird well not a weird it's a beautiful rhythm that's established between the operator and the actors that it becomes like they're performing ballet almost like it's this very physical choreographed dance and it uses handheld photography in a way that isn't it's not just there to be kitschy like it's very interested in documenting the physical struggle that people are having with their bodies but also what they're experiencing internally like I almost I always feel with this film the camera is almost like it feels like it's floating at times and it's almost reflecting the sort of feeling of being overwhelmed that Jonathan and Lucy are feeling like it's it's very claustrophobic even Mm -hmm. when it's capturing landscapes i mean that's just the other thing is that i know this is like you know Werner herzog is obsessed with landscapes and not your <laughs> postcard photography bullshit but inner landscapes that speak to the drama of the characters but it's just like the sequence where he's you know on his journey to the castle oh yeah it's just one walking. of like the
1: greatest things ever like i mean and well you We've seen, like, so many Dracula movies where you have the carriage pull up and Jonathan gets on the carriage to where it's, you know, you know it's coming. And it, even in this one, it's the image of him walking through the Carpathian Mountains like he is in the great locales that they found. And this, you know, the carriage comes up out of nowhere out of black. I mean, it's such a – it does kind of – it is a moment for you to like wow, that, this is – it makes you forget the other ones or – you don't think of the other ones while doing it cuz there's like i said there's so many famous sequences from the dracula movies like that
0: yeah well actually my favorite scene in the whole film is like the sort of mountain range time lapse oh yeah. yeah where the <laughs> the great move the wagner piece like the fact that he like allows the music to evolve in that moment like he just lets the music play like he lets the music just control the atmosphere of the movie that that to me is where a lot of films they get it wrong in the sense that i think his what's interesting about his use of like a camera or holding shots for long periods of time to the point where they get so drawn out you you have you're forced to start to look at an image um and digest it for all that it's worth you know it, it it does become almost even though it's in motion it is like you standing in front of a painting and staring at that painting for 15 minutes and really observing everything that you can observe in that painting it's so rare in movies that it gets to the point when you're watching this where suddenly like a mountain range it starts to look like something else like it it becomes completely alien so mundane yeah. things start to feel very different
1: he does that in a lot of his films too Anna Morgana,
0: That Yeah, every... Well, yeah, you don't like that film as much. I love that movie as well, but um, it creates mythology. That's yeah. really what it is. I mean, that's the thing for me about the whole movie is just, it's like, it's this great myth, like, on screen, and everything is so um, almost operatic. In that moment, with the the sky changing against the range, it's just the reality of the film starts to change and it's like you're watching this this portal into another world like open itself up. Like, I don't, it's, <laughs> I don't know, I this is why we shouldn't talk about Werner Herzog, because I always <laughs> sound like so pretentious when I start talking about it, because it's just like, because for me, his films are very hard to critically discuss in a way that you would most movies, because they're constructed yeah. in such a different way and I think his right. intentions are not typical of most like I would I would say at this point Werner Herzog is a mainstream filmmaker yes and to be mainstream and still be so different from everything else
1: well what what I think's impressive about him I said he's like a mainstream filmmaker at this point is that he's one of those filmmakers where he's not quite
0: a household name but he's pretty close well at this point I mean he's he makes appearances on parks and recreation he's yeah, doing the bo- he's gonna be it's in It's weird the new, that his, he's got... He's in the new
1: Penguin's movie, Penguin's of Madagascar. Is he really? <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, he does a voiceover, because it's, I guess, like, the beginning, like, the first half of the movie's, like, found documentary footage, oh, and, okay. he, and he that's, narrates it. Oh, that's cool. But people know who he is. You know, they know him, they know him, they know his voice. And it's so weird that a guy, like, that makes films like this is of that level. I mean, it's amazing.
0: why well, I, I just think it's... Um...
1: Well, I think it speaks to how good his films are. Yeah. That they can be different than your average film and yet your average film goer still goes, Wow, this one's really good
0: (laughs) They're the perfect, like, art house movie in a way. You know, like they just (laughs) they can appeal to everybody. And like I know my girlfriend she isn't she hasn't seen very many of his films but she loves listening to Werner Herzog talk like you know just yeah, yeah, people, he's such yeah, a like a a like a lovely like charismatic person and he speaks so I mean it, and I think it all goes back to he made a statement once about how cinema isn't for the academic it's for the illiterate Yeah that sums it all up I don't know how else to I don't think there's a better way to articulate it that his movies are very poetic and they're very beautiful and he's a, a very intelligent person, but you don't ever feel like that's, um, I never feel that's getting in the way of what he right trying like to, it's, what he's trying to he's do. He's not intimidating the audience with like, look no. how smart I am or something like that. No, I never think he's doing
1: that. Yeah. And another thing I like is that he leaves mysteries in his film. And I don't mean like some things are never solved, but there is a sense of mystery in in his films. Like the name of Casper Hauser, I it was my favorite of his movies. Mm-hmm. There is something mysterious about that film, and it's not who was the guy that locked him up and who's the guy that killed him. That's not what I'm talking about. There's just something else about it that you just think about when it's over, and you can't come up with any kind of answer about it. It's just something that kind of touched you in a way in his films that is just lingers on for you, and I think that's for all of his films. Well, just talking about this movie, the final image
0: of this film—what the mm-hmm. fuck do you make with that? Yeah, Jonathan Harker riding off, and there's this sky transformation, and it's you know it's a very profound image. And again, he he just lets that Wagner piece continue out over the black. It's this insinuation that the movie's continuing. Yeah. we're not going to see it, but it's um, it's it's almost like his films. I think. You get this when you read like a great book. You finish the book, but when it really means something to you or the the characters meant something to you, you think about those characters beyond the text. Yeah, yeah. And to afford that to, I think, a film audience is really unusual. Most, most films have very emphatic endings or definitive endings mm-hmm. or endings that there's a twist. I do
1: get that for me personally. I also get that with Truffaut films, certain Truffaut films. Like for me, like the wild child is like that or uh, two English girls is like that for me.
0: Yeah. I would say Truffaut in a way he kind of falls into a similar place. I mean, he's more academic definitely than yeah. Herzog is, but his films are, they do kind of fall into that category of kind of being like the perfect kind of art house movie where he can yeah. appeal to all, all audiences. And he also kind of, drifts into more, like, genre-heavy territory at times with, like, The Bride or Black or something like that.
1: And, and like, Herzog, he's in movies... He's acting in movies like uh, Close Encounters right. and things like that, right now.
0: now, the the very best thing about the ending of the movie, though, is the appearance of Herr Scheitz. <laughs> you know, who's in Enigma of Casper Hauser and yeah. Strozek. And when he when he's asked to arrest Van Helsing... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can't arrest
0: him. The police don't
1: exist anymore. I don't but know I where to take you. Think, like the humor that all of a sudden shows up. I think in the whole end ending, there's quite a bit of humor. Not only with that, but also when uh uh Bruno gans is like, "I'll sweep up this mess. This house is dusty," and she sweeps it up, and his movement away from the chair. Oh yeah, it's like, it's like this very
0: physical comedy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was like, "Where? Like, I
0: wonder what that's about." Well, I didn't know. I I wondered like with the uh, the arrest him. Sort of idea was like a a jab at like Borges' culture, almost. This idea yeah. that, in a way, it's like a very nihilistic outlook on the world at the end of the movie, and that these people are still trying to s- maintain some kind of law and order and in an a order. space that it, in a place that has just it's all chaos at not, this point. Yeah, you know? there
1: is not. There are no. There is no order at this point. There's not enough people to have order at this point. And just the absurdity of that. Yeah.
0: And Herr Scheitz is just such like a, <laughs> he's just such a lovely, like, person to to look at on screen, I don't know.
1: Yeah. But yeah, his little thing, like, where am I supposed to, and I like when Helsing's ha- like, so where are you going to take me? And he's like, I don't know.
0: <laughs> take me wherever you would like, you know. <laughs> and he's like, I don't have a weapon, you know, how am I yeah. supposed to guard him? Yeah, but that
1: was like, yeah, I was like, why not it's very funny, and all that stuff at the end is very funny. And I was um, but it, nothing else is really funny in that movie. So, I actually think I
0: uh, Roland Tof- Topor okay, yeah. is actually
1: Runfield. pretty, <laughs> pretty. is pretty humorous. Yeah, he is. You're right. And his his little laugh at the end yeah. of everything. Yeah, but there is. I do think there's something kind of playful about Herzog, where I can see him putting that in. Mm-hmm. You know, after everything you've just seen. Like you said, I mean, they these characters are trying to keep some semblance of order in a place where there is no order. And but that in that same regard, even after everything you see, there is still silly things that happen.
0: Well, I, I think he, I I heard him say that he wrote that entire sequence specifically so that he could put hair Scheitz in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> like he just wanted him somewhere in there, so he yeah. wrote up this scene <laughs> and gave him this dialogue <laughs> just because when you have friends or people that you like a lot as performers you know you you try to find a place to put them in the film you know and uh i don't think there's anything wrong with that i'm sure there's some people no. that would oh that's self-indulgent or whatever but yeah or it doesn't fit the tone of the movie or whatever but i think it i think it's a great way but it's such a that's... good like a nice relief yeah to just kind of get this joke which is also like it's it's an example of it's an example of a movie that's, like, not taking itself too seriously either. Yeah. It's very unusual, but, like, in a very good way.
1: There's also something silly about that scene when housing's like, well, I know what I need to do now, and he all of a sudden he comes back with a steak. <laughs> <laughs> like, where have you even gotten that from? So he just walks out there, comes right back, and he's got one. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't like, thought about that. Even that, there's,
0: like, something kind of, like, silly about it. Yeah. Well, it's just that's even just playing up the notion that... Like, oh yeah, Van Helsing always has stakes. right. with you him, know? Like, <laughs> but
1: I also like his his remark. It, it was like, "Well, I know what I got to do now."
0: <laughs> yeah, that is actually yeah, that is true. Like he's not he's not the man of action, Van Van Helsing no. that we know. So how would he even know that? That's well, that's what like because I
1: watched it with my wife, and she said the same thing. Last, and she was like, "How would he even know to do that?" And I'm like, "Well, I can only assume that when she was telling Van Helsing that what she thinks, and he said that's just superstition." But she also went into the whole steak thing. But that is my only... Answer.
0: It would have been funnier if he brought back like a fork with a T-bone on it or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah try to feed it to well. him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing I was thinking about was... Um, I don't think the film... I, I know a lot of people view it this way, but I don't think it's a movie rooted in German expressionism. Yeah, I don't either. It's more like it employs the techniques of more romantic, gothic sort of s- storytelling. But I was wondering if I can't think of very many films that are conceived from that influence anymore that are like really molded in the vein of German gothic romanticism.
1: Oh, that, yeah. Ooh, I don't know.
0: No, no. And, and especially like horror films post this point because horror has either gotten really glossy or it's just gotten really like
1: dirty yeah like real gritty um that's a good question like i can't think of because even like the newest dracula movie if you can call it that isn't even i mean it's completely removed from anything like that mm-hmm. i mean you know what i know you don't like this movie but i think uh the most recent wolfman movie hits some elements of like kind of like gothic romance to it
0: yeah maybe that's still really glossy in its own way. Yeah, I agree.
1: I agree. I agree with you. But I wouldn't say that possibly that's what the filmmakers were maybe originally intending, not Joe Johnson who was replacing the original director, which I think was Mark Romanek, I think.
0: Yeah. I just was thinking about that. That In a way, this is the last film to really embrace that approach to yeah. storytelling. I mean, I, I definitely think there's probably shades of it in other movies that Herzog has made, um, but yeah. So Is it is it a true horror film?
1: Yeah, that's the other thing. Is it a, I mean, but what makes a horror film then? I mean, he is a monster. He does kill people. It's not horrific and I don't think it's necessarily even scary. It's just very unnerving. It's just Yeah, it is very unnerving.
0: There's a dead rooster on the table that's still completely intact. That freaks and, me out. And
1: Bruno and Bruno eats from it. Yes. Yeah, that's that's what I think is more amazing is that he's not even he's so not moved by that that he even goes oh, that looks pretty tasty. <laughs> or there's the there's the
0: clock with the skull head thats That like, yeah that was okay, okay that, that
1: was another, yeah, that was another good one. Um, yeah, I mean I don't necessarily think it's scary, but I mean if this isn't a horror film, then it's you really have to reevaluate how people you know classify things into genres. It does hit all the genre tropes.
0: I mean, I think the horror of this comes more from the implication of something rather yeah. than the actual thing. How do you think it compares to the Murnau
1: film? Well, you know, it's been quite a while since I've watched that Nosferatu 1922 one, and that's one of the things that made me want to do is sit down when I have time to watch that one again to really compare them, to have them both fresh in my mind. Because there are
0: some people that criticize this film of just replicating the best imagery from the Murnau film.
1: No, I will, I will say in that regard, those moments when once I saw them in this film, I go, "Oh, that's I remember that in the original one." Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's a, I don't think that's bad to be honest with you, and I don't think that's really something you should criticize. Like Gus Van Sant's Psycho, I mean, whether or not that was worthwhile or it was good or not, I actually don't think that was a bad experiment to do.
0: No, I think it's a pretty amazing experiment, considering he got a studio to,
1: to finance it, yeah. that. I mean, some people so, consider
0: that uh, irresponsible, but
1: if you can do it, <laughs> do it. Yeah. So I don't necessarily think those things are wrong, and I think they can work as as good experiments for what you're doing. But I,
0: but I think that goes in part goes back to just what Herzog's intentions were when reimagining. The movie Anyway, it wasn't so much about retelling a Dracula story, but more oh, right. so about forging a link between the grandfather generation of German cinema with the current generation that he was kind of tangentially related to because there was, as he says, no father generation because they either sided with the Nazis or they were forced out of the country.
1: Or they left, yeah.
0: So... Really the filmmakers that they had to look to for inspiration, influence, film teachers, which is hard to like really even think about for people living in other countries that
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: there just wouldn't always be filmmakers to look at. You know, it was the Murnau, Fritz Lang, G. W. Paps. Because he felt Nosferatu was the greatest German film ever made, that it was about re legitimizing German culture. So for me, the the recreating of those images, even if it is the same f- frame and it's the same actor, it's the same uh, choreography, it still has its own power within the context of this movie. It, it's it's yeah. not like I see it and go, "Oh my God, he's doing that!" Like it doesn't. I don't then immediately think of that shot in Nosferatu. Yeah. Um, but I think for what he's trying to do, and in a way, paying homage to. What he thinks is the most important film that his country ever produced. I think it makes perfect sense. So I don't. I don't. Yeah. I think people that are criticizing him for that are being very unfair. Yeah. Did you watch the German language version? No, I,
1: I watched it streaming on Amazon and it was the English language one. Oh, okay. How did that play? Sometimes it appeared like Bruno Gans was just trying to remember his lines in English.
0: Like okay, that's it,
1: yeah, I don't think it was really much of any other difference. Because
0: 'cause I've only ever seen the German language version, and i've I've read that people prefer it because they do say that the actors feel yeah, you can tell that they're less comfortable, yeah,
1: yeah, I actually don't think Kinsky seems less comfortable, but I do think Bruno Gans seems like really uncomfortable doing English
0: now, the only thing that I thought was interesting from what I had read is that Herzog claims that the film wasn't shot simultaneously in both languages. He only shot certain scenes in English because he knew that it was going to have to be dubbed regardless because Roland Topar and Isabella Johnny were speaking French anyway.
1: See, I will, I will say this, that I there are certain scenes where it looks like it's dubbed. Well, a lot of, I guess
0: even the German language version... Like, Roland Topar's voice is not his voice in the German-language version. Neither is Isabella Johnny, so... Is it better than the Murnau film? Is it fair to even compare them?
1: Yeah, I don't know how fair it is to compare them, necessarily. I mean, I just watched this one. I want to say that this one's better, but maybe if I sat down and watched the Murnau one, I'd be like, ah uh-huh, this one's better. They're both obviously great. <laughs> yes. For me, that
0: separates them is when I watch the Murnau film... I feel at times it feels very much like a blockbuster. It's much more like stylized, and yeah. the photography is slightly more experimental, considering the time. But it moves at such like a rapid pace; it's constantly in motion. I mean, there are scenes where it's like all silent films, where it's lingering on like Count Orloff wandering on the ship alone, or the Jonathan and Mina, but that's not their names. Jonathan Hutter and I think Ellen in the
1: Ellen DeGeneres.
0: Yes, in that isn't she the? What do they make the sound in? Ooh, ooh, or is that Wendy Williams? <laughs> Which one? I don't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they should do like a replace the soundtrack with some kind of like temp track from like a Wendy Williams show recording where it's just like the whole <laughs> Nosferatu ooh, ooh. Like... Ooh, ooh. Doesn't she have like a? Doesn't she what?
1: Doesn't she doesn't she have like a like a wall that she sticks gum on or something?
0: Wendy Williams? Yeah,
1: I think so. I don't know.
0: A Wendy Williams remake of Nosferatu. I would see that. Oh, I
1: would too. Where she plays the vampire? All the rules. Sign me up. A tall and busty Count Dracula. She's really tall.
0: And she's very busty. Yeah, she is. One thing we didn't mention it's one of my favorite, I don't know if I'd call it a shot or a sequence in the film, is the young boy playing the violin. Yeah. Herzog decides not to in any way visualize the geography between Bruto Gans and him. I mean, when he falls, you see him, but my interpretation always is that child is a ghost. Okay. You know, he's hearing this music. I mean, you're in a... When you're at the castle, you're in a completely different world, so suddenly all these supernatural mm-hmm. elements seem par for the course, so I've always, that child is dead. Yeah. I can That's just it. one of those moments where Werner Herzog likes to implement his films with street musicians mm-hmm. and things like oh, that. And when, that it, just... when it comes
1: on, you just go, oh, I'm yeah. watching her film.
0: <laughs> yeah. And also, I love the catacombs at the beginning. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, that was a and the new.
0: yes go. Yes, and with the one that has the shoes He's on. on. Yeah, that's my favorite one. And that is just, I mean, and I love that that opening, it has no relationship to the story at all, but no. it just, it just perfectly presents this sense of of dread that's yeah. well, sets forthcoming. Up,
1: sets up the rest of it, so.
0: But I love that a lot of them are, seem to be little kids, and yeah.
1: Well, I read that, that he deliberately uh, set them up from smallest to biggest. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, where He, like, set them up himself.
0: <laughs> and the gypsy extras are great yeah, yeah. as well, and that they're speaking their own language. And the the animal extras are great. How many Jive turkeys are you going to give? Uh,
1: it? Two. No, five.
0: <laughs> and you? I'm going to stick with three. Three? Okay. It's about as good as Mr. Sardonicus <laughs> about about yeah, I can see that no, it's a five for me, yeah. Where does this fall for you and his
1: body of work? Is it near the top or you know what i I mean again, that's tough to say because he's made so many like legitimate great movies, like I said, Casper Hauser's my favorite, but that Strozik, I love that movie too, and if i I guess if I were to pick what movies to watch of his, I'd start with those two. Mm-hmm. But this one probably wouldn't be that far behind. It's tough of him because does he? He doesn't have a bottom tier, you know. He's got a top tier, and I guess like a tier that's right below that that's still really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I put it in the top tier.
0: Yeah, I, I've never considered you know ranking his films, but I imagine yeah. if I did, it'd be a nightmare.
1: Yeah, it'd be t- it'd be impossible to do.
0: So we received an email from David, which Andy is going to read, but. Before we do that, I was just going to say that we should, I think, let's
1: let's take it in two parts. Okay. So here we go. David C., he writes, I cannot agree with the 2001 comments. It is a dull movie, although it has been a long time since I've seen it. For me, it falls into the same category as Barry Lyndon, bloated. Like Kubrick was so far up his own ego that he could not bear to cut the films to a sensible length for the material. I like a clockwork orange, not because I would like to be Alex. The film is an excellent version of the book it is based on, and I find it almost dystopian world interesting.
0: Isn't David an anagram for Alex? Yeah, I think so. I believe it is,
1: yeah. Um, the rather downbeat view of humanity. Alex is not cured. His fellow thugs become thug policemen. In general, there is no really positive characters in the film. Appeals to me. I, I would say that Kubrick's Press' film would be Paths of Glory, a brilliant film. Okay, so let's look at that. Well, what do you have to say about that? I'll
0: start with the criticism regarding 2001 and Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to single out David specifically in what I'm a, I think I'm about to say. Uh, because I think a lot of people who dislike Kubrick, they tend to maintain similar feelings about his work. Mm-hmm. But this concept that Kubrick was this egotistical, self-indulgent mastermind who thought he was like some kind of cinematic demigod is kind of troubling to me because it's all out of it's all created out of like a fabricated presumption. I don't know Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. He may have been an asshole, who knows. He had good, he had good taste. I
1: will say that.
0: <laughs> and you could say the same thing about the people who look at Kubrick as like this great manipulator of form who created all these various like labyrinths within his film and you know pack them with all these hidden meanings that are there for us to, you know, unravel. But everyone's perception of him has nothing to do with their understanding of his personal character. So the only way that they can judge him is by watching his movies. Personally, the criticism that those films are dull, that's fine. But why are they dull? Why? Saying they're just dull gives me no insight into what he means when he says that. Are they dull because they're long and they're restrained and they don't have any plot? Like, is that why they're dull? Like, are all three-hour films that Adopt that approach. Are they all dull? Saying they're something is dull is such a blanketed criticism. So it's hard for me to even know how to approach why someone wouldn't like this films when they're just saying they're dull. Yeah, two thousand one is dull, but that's part of what I think makes it an interesting movie. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, in a way, it demythi- demythifies space travel in in its dullness, in a way. Much the same way Das Boot does the same thing for being in a submarine.
0: The two films he singled out happen to be my two two favorite Kubrick movies, too. And it's interesting that this gets brought up, I think, when we're discussing Herzog's Nosferatu. Because I think where you could draw comparisons between the three films is that 2001 and Barry Lyndon, they have a keen awareness of physical space of how they manipulate time in movies and how music and image yeah. align with themselves. And for me, what I like about 2001 and Barry Lyndon is that they're movies that evolve as you're watching them. Mm-hmm. They aren't like these very tightly wound switch, Swiss watch narratives. Those, I mean, I like those movies too, but yeah. he's att- attempting to achieve, achieve something
1: else. Yeah, I mean, these films are deliberately slow.
0: You can dislike 2001, that's fine, but you can't, disregard its place in film history. There's probably hundreds and hundreds of movies that David loves, for example, that are directly influenced or just lifting
1: from 2001. Mm -hmm. Well, to a certain extent, even Barry Lyndon, I think Barry Lyndon is a pretty influential movie that doesn't really get its credit for being influential. I think the way that he composes images in that film, for instance.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, he allows you to... He stages an image, but then he waits to let the action begin. Yeah. Like I don't I don't see what's wrong with that. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very unusual approach, but that's what makes those movies like Barry Linden narratively really isn't that interesting of a film. It's how he can how he executes that narrative yeah. or how he explores it that ma- makes it what as interesting as it is. Yeah. So that's what I have to say about that. Okay. Good.
1: Do you have something to say? I about just that? like, you know, it's you know, it's art, so it's subjective. Um, I think it's fine if he thinks they're dull, and he just doesn't go into it in the letter, and that's you know, it's a two, it's a one paragraph letter with an extra sentence at the end. Um, So I'm not going to really put him to task for that. I mean, (laughs) I guess it would have been nice for him to explain why he thinks they're dull. I mean, Clackwork Orange is a lot more kinetic, and he talks about how much he likes that,
0: so. Which I don't think either one of us have ever disputed it as a, like, as a great movie.
1: No, it's just. Not a movie I'm, I particularly love, and I have some philosophical problems with it. And, I, I mean, he does throw in that he doesn't want to be Alex, and that's fine. But I do think a lot of what people like about the movie is they think Alex is cool.
0: Well, yeah, I think people that are going as Alex for Halloween, yeah, I like mean, it's, that is exactly, that is something that, it's unfair to fault the movie for that. But that is just, that's part of the culture that surrounds the film. Yeah.
1: And I don't like that part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it hard to enjoy a movie about a uh, a rapist in which people go, ooh, isn't he cool? I want to go as this rapist for, for Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> yeah, it makes it kind of hard. Um, and again, I don't necessarily think that's what Kubrick was intending to happen, but in his construction of the character in the film, that's what happens. And you could say, well, it's based on the book, and I get that, but still. Um,
0: now... I guess, as we're talking about this, and in what, a way, separate, what separates that, though, from then going as Freddy Krueger for Halloween or Jason? Well, Freddy is
1: such a cartoon character, I think. Right. That I think that's where the difference is. They are such cartoon characters. And I they, guess it's,
0: it's the intentions of the films yeah. that...
1: And yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Um, <clears throat> people go as Freddy Krueger because he looks neat, he's got a neat design, and he's funny in the realm of being a killer, you know? hmm he says witty one-liners, whereas there's something about Alex that, for whatever reason, people think he's cool, and I don't know what it is.
0: Well, I think maybe the problem is is they view it in the same context as they're viewing Freddy Krueger.
1: Mhm. <clears throat> yeah, and that can be a problem if they're viewing someone who's doing very
0: realistic crimes. Alex is a much more terrifying villain than Freddy Krueger ever yeah. would be.
1: Like. Yeah, I mean, Freddy is just essentially a modern. Boogeyman, a modern ghoul, as Wayne Castle would say, <laughs> whereas Alex is a real-life real, real life terror, and people finding something to identify with it is weird or and scary in a way. But it's still, you know, I've seen the movie multiple times. It's still a great movie, but I just have those like, philosophical problems with it. Um, I do like 2001 and Barry and more, <laughs> so um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you and I are cr- contrarian. In that regard, of not longtime academic film critics, but maybe more so of your modern film, f- film cinephile, as they like to call themselves. Okay. You know what I mean?
0: Uh, in that, do you think more academic film critics place Clockwork Orange above No, those no, films? below
1: 2001.
0: Oh, okay. I think more of, uh, Oh, I see. You're saying the reverse. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I think in uh,
1: I I know like going to different things. You know, I've done production and film studies in college, and both times I was more likely to hear someone talk about how cool Clockwork Orange is than say uh, Barry Lyndon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <You know. clears throat> and I don't know. If, I don't know what that means about modern audiences or anything. But...
0: Well, one I think is looking at it on the surface, one is definitely more accessible than the yeah, other. Yeah. yeah. And I can understand that, but it's Clockwork Orange is not a movie that it's not it its rewatch value does not increase for me. Like it's no, uh, oh I gotta I gotta I, I'm in
1: the mood to watch rape. Right. No, I never in that yeah. I never go, ooh, I'm gonna watch a clockwork orange right now. And this is every movie that where I go there are a lot of great movies that I have that I go, I want to expose my wife to it. I never think that about a Clockwork Orange. I never go. I wonder if she's seen that. I wonder if she'd love to see that. That's never entered my mind. It's not a movie that I really ever go. Like I'd like to introduce this to someone. I think they'd like it.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's because it's too good at depicting what it does. That, like it's that's too true. Good. Yeah. It's too unsettling. Yeah.
1: So there's a second part yeah. to this. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna have to give me some help on this one. As a fan of Dogma, I would have to agree with it disagree with Andy's characteristics of those who like dogma now you sent me this last night and I'm gonna have to tell you I don't remember what I said (laughs) yeah I knew you wouldn't um (laughs) yeah so
0: I actually had to like go back and try to figure out where you had said anything about this and I think it was on the safe episode okay somehow we got caught up into talking about boondock saints and you said the people the fans of boondock saints are the same people that like dogma and that they're lower IQ, uh, <laughs> somewhat racist, homophobic. Uh, you really took the dogma fans to task, and now they're retaliating back guess at you.
1: So. I like how it wasn't i boond- I'm happy it wasn't a boondock, boondock Saints fan. I guess. Oh, you'd be dead. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, David, you're not like that. <laughs> I there's no doubt a lot that are. I'm sure. And I was think I was saying more like the racist homophobic stuff about the Boondock Saints fans.
0: Yeah, and I, I can't comment on this because I've never seen Dogma, so I have yeah, no And I think there's idea. a lot of, and I think there's,
1: I'm not saying that, I don't think Dogma is necessarily like a racist film. I do think there is like a, an element of homophobia that runs throughout of Kevin Smith's films, I think. Um, and I think, you know, I think you, you get that in Clerks with the whole character of Snowball, I think in a way, although that's heterosexual sex that he's having. The way that they're so grossed out that he likes to have his, you know, semen spit into his mouth, I think is kind of...
0: Well, even just the the whole concept of chasing Amy. Yeah, I think it's like a very...
1: Oh, it's such a, um, like, clueless straight man's view of lesbianism. Or just, you know, homosexuality in general. Uh, but I don't think Kevin Smith is necessarily a straight-up homophobe. I think he has certain, maybe uh, outdated views and thoughts about homosexuality.
0: I would not put him that far apart from the, you know, the people that are opposed, that are part of that whole gamer gate yeah. situation. You know, men that don't believe women should have equal rights in gaming communities or whatever. I haven't followed it that I closely. I haven't followed it just, much really at all. But I'm... there's a certain antiquated philosophy that exists in nerd subcultures That this is like, this is the boys' world or something. Um,
1: Kevin Smith reminds me of a guy that he would either see two guys kissing and he'd either say, ooh, that's gross, or he'd find some way to laugh at it, like make a joke about it. It just wouldn't be a natural thing to him, you know? mm -hmm. And uh, I could be totally wrong. you have to say something. Yeah, I could be totally wrong, but that's just how I, I view it. And I don't think dogma is nearly as bad as Boondock Saints is. I'll just say that. And you know my my remarks about the Boondock Saints fans, where I guess I caught dogma fans up in with it as well, is uh that's obviously not everybody right you know there's going to be exceptions to the rules that's what makes rules are the exceptions so uh david you you're uh, you're not one of those guys so <laughs> but he has a very childish view of uh Kevin Smith does not David I don't know how David views it, but a very childish view of things like uh sexuality and things like that which You know, that can be fine. I think you can make, you know, satires of different things, but, you know, look at Chasing Amy, I just think it's such a, obviously that's not how, I mean, in in that movie he's essentially saying that this person, I don't remember Joey Lauren Adams' character's name, that she's choosing to be gay. Isn't it Amy? No, she's not Amy. (laughs) Oh, no, okay. That, yeah, that he's, that she's choosing to be gay. That she can just switch like that. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I'm kind of...
0: Or just every Jason Lee character oh, ever yeah. in a Kevin Smith movie. Yeah. That was this episode's edition, edition of Andy making a mess and cleaning it up. <laughs> Hopefully more of those to come.
1: Yeah, I hope not from Boondock Saints fans. <laughs> you're wrong. Death threat emails. Yeah, you're just wrong if that's how it was. If you say that, that's obviously what Boondock Saints fans are.
0: So Andy, what are we
1: looking at next episode? Well, you know, you know, we 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 when we were talking about how a movie like *A Clockwork Orange* kind of makes us uncomfortable because of you know certain fans of it see Alex and they think he's cool or you know like kind of like Kevin Smith is antiquated with his what we assume are his views of homosexuality. So we're looking at the 1987 uh, action adventure film directed by Andy Sedaris, Heart Ticket to Hawaii*, which is a very you know PC uh, progressive. Progre- <laughs> Aggressive look at uh, well women uh, uh, women that work for the FBI, and it's a uh, it's his second entry in the Triple B series.
0: You've seen this, I haven't. Yeah, no. I've been wanting to check out an Andy Sedaris film, and I, for whatever reason, I naturally gravitated towards this one. I think so. it's the best one to
1: pick.
0: So you can hear Andy on the steven and Andy Meet Batman podcast, and follow him on Letterboxd where I can be found as well. FilmJive can be reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. Please send all your thoughts and feedback to filmjive at gmail.com.
1: Anything else? Sorry if I hurt the feelings of any dogma fan. It's just a movie I don't like, and I don't like Kevin Smith, so... You've sold it. But they can like it all they want, I don't know. It just means that they probably hate Barack Obama, because he's black. <laughs> now that that's getting... <laughs> <All right. laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to the Film Jive Podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.